Good evening and welcome to Wooddale Church and tonight's event, which is sponsored by Wooddale Church and by the Wooddale Forum. We also want to give a welcome to those who are listening via live simulcast with Twin Cities radio station 980 AM, KKMS. We welcome you, as well as those who are listening across the country via a live Internet link, which is provided by the Wooddale web- website and 980 AM KKMS. We're thankful that uh, you are here, and we welcome you. My name is David Clark. I teach theology at Bethel Seminary here in the Twin Cities, and it's my privilege to be the moderator this evening, to ask questions and to probe and to be a part of the discussion. Our topic tonight, as you know, is a perennial question, do evil and suffering disprove God? And our purpose is to assist you and to enter into the context of dialogue so that each of us can find what is true and we can live our lives according to what is true. For it is wise to do that. And we all know that the heart cannot embrace what the mind regards as nonsense. And so we're in a search for truth, and we believe that the the format of dialogue is one that helps us to achieve that. Let me tell you a little bit about the format this evening. Our two guests will each have an opportunity to make presentations as we begin our evening together. And each of them will spend 15 minutes presenting their opening statements. And then we'll take a brief break, and we'll have a word from our sponsor, and we'll allow for collection of question cards, which I'll explain to you in just a moment. After that, we'll each give uh, the opportunity to respond, and both of our guests will give a response to the opening statement of the other, and then we will also do some discussion among the three of us here uh, on the stage. And then it will be your turn, and you will have an opportunity to ask questions via the cards, and uh, then I will pose these questions to our two guests and see what they have to say. And finally, we'll have a couple of closing statements and uh, then we'll be concluded. Now, I've mentioned these comment cards, and you should have received these as you came in. There are two halves, as you see, and uh, it's neatly perforated down the middle. On the right-hand side, you see some open spaces where you can ask questions. You can ask a question of uh, either one or both of our two uh, guests for this evening. And we'd like you to go ahead and uh, think about those questions. And after the opening statements, we'll take a moment uh, to collect these cards. We will try to select some representative questions because uh, we're sure that there'll be a little bit of repetition. And we'll try to ask those representative questions so that our guests have an opportunity to respond. And then on the left-hand side of the card, you see that uh, there is an opportunity for you to give some feedback And uh, we'd like you to hold on to that left-hand side of the card until the end of the evening. And as you move out the doors and into the lobby at the end of our event tonight, uh, you will have an opportunity to drop that card in a a box. And uh, this will give us some feedback and give you an opportunity to do several things uh, to give us feedback about the event so that we can better serve you both tonight and in the future. Now, with the housekeeping aside, I'd like to introduce our two guests tonight. It's my privilege first to introduce Dr. Walter Sinnott Armstrong, who's a professor of philosophy at Dartmouth College. He's the author and or editor of eight books and dozens of articles. He has special interests in ethics, philosophy of law. We had some interesting conversation on the 
law system in Australia, which is a special area of interest. He studies theory of knowledge and informal logic. He enjoys golf, which is a very good thing. Racquetball. He enjoys his children, another good thing. Travel and eating, not necessarily in that order. He says that he'd like to say hi to his kids, and we'll probably let him do that. He lives with uh, his wife and two children in Hanover, New Hampshire. The other guest representing Christian theism is Dr. William Lane Craig. Uh, Bill is a research professor of philosophy at Talbot Theological Seminary in Los Angeles, although he actually lives in Marietta, Georgia, with his wife, Jan, and two friends, two children, also friends, uh, Charity and John. I think they can be both, right? Yeah, those are not mutually exclusive categories. Bill is the author of 14 books and also numerous articles. I have copies of the two resumes of these gentlemen, and we had to cut down a small grove in order to create the paper uh, to put down all the wonderful things that these men have written. Bill has special interest in philosophy of religion, the subject of God and time, one of those really difficult and perennial questions, uh, evidence for the existence of God, and also has written about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as I say, he is uh, now living in Marietta, Georgia, though he has spent 13 years living in Europe in four different countries, so has had a good bit of international experience. Well, it's my privilege to welcome both uh, Walter and Bill to Wooddale Church this evening. And now we're going to begin uh, our topic, Do Evil and Suffering Disprove God? And we'll begin first with the opening statement by uh, Walter and then proceed directly from that to the opening statement by Bill. Well, hi. I'm uh, very glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. I must admit that I feel somewhat like a Christian in the Roman Colosseum. I, I don't think I've ever been in a church this big, um, but I assume you didn't come to see me eaten by lions, or at least I hope not. I hope that you came for an exchange of ideas, and I think it's great that Wooddale Church puts on this series of events, uh, which should stimulate your thinking, uh, and I hope will lead to thinking well beyond this event, and, and lead you to talk with each other about these issues uh, in the coming weeks. So thanks very much for coming. I want to make it clear from the start why I'm here. Uh, I'm a teacher, and so I take it that my job is to educate and, of course, also to learn, because you can't educate without learning. So I want to make this debate an educational experience for all of us, including myself. I'm not here to win some kind of high school debate competition. I think of debate as a funny kind of thing. I hope this will be a discussion. I'm also not here to turn people away from religion. I think there are many wonderful things about religion. There are lots of different types of religion. Uh, many people need religion in their lives in order to face difficulties. It often brings communities together. I don't want to undermine any of that. However, religion can play its positive roles without all of the fancy doctrines that theologians try to get you to accept. Moreover, some special doctrines about God are almost incoherent, or at least very implausible. And it's those and only those doctrines that I want to argue against tonight. Because my target is so limited, I think we have to start by saying what type of God we're talking about. And there should be a little slide that comes on at this point. There we go. Good. 
we're talking about a traditional Christian God as God has been conceived since the Middle Ages, which means that God is all good. Uh, God always does the best that he can, and he's all-powerful, so he can do anything that's logically possible. He's not limited by the circumstances or even by the laws of nature. And God is all-knowing. He knows everything that, it's, that is true. Now, those top three are the three I'm going to focus on, but I mentioned the other three in case they come up in discussion. God is supposed to be eternal, outside of time. He's effective. He can bring about changes in time. And he's personal. He makes choices, has a will, and so on. I want to argue that nothing has all of these features. There might be something that has most of these features, but there's nothing that has all of them. I should also say a quick word about proof, since that's in the title of the debate as well. I don't see how you can have an absolutely conclusive proof about any of these views about God. And so I'm not even going to try to give you an absolutely conclusive proof. What I'm going to try to do instead is to give you adequate evidence uh, against the existence of a traditional God of the sort that was just defined. And my argument's very simple. It's very old. There's nothing new about it. I make no claim for originality. In its most powerful form, my argument focuses on examples. So here's one. A friend of mine had a child who was born with a horrible disease. Many doctors tried to save this child's life, but they couldn't. And the baby lived for a short time in terrible pain and then died. The parents were devastated. They separated from each other shortly thereafter, and they've really never recovered from the event. Now, suppose that a doctor could have cured that child and enabled it to live a normal, happy life with a simple operation that would not have cost much or harmed anybody or deprived other patients of needed care. But nonetheless, the doctor chose not to save it. Why? Maybe the doctor just didn't feel like operating that day. I would consider such a doctor to be a moral monster, just to let that child die under those circumstances. And I assume that most of you would agree with me on that. Now apply these standards to God. On the traditional conception, God is omnipotent, so God can save my friend's child. Moreover, God could have cured the child with no harm to other people. God could have reached in, changed the genetic structure so that this horrible genetic disease did not occur, and the child would not have gone through all that pain and death. Did God have an adequate reason to let this baby suffer and die? Well, I don't see why he did. And I bet you can't see any good reason for God to let that happen either. It just doesn't make sense that an all-powerful, all-good God would let such evil happen. That's why this bit of evil is evidence against the existence of the traditional God. And notice that one bit of evil that's unjustified would be enough to refute an all-powerful, all-good God. But it's worth mentioning that there's lots of evil like this in the world. My friend's baby was not the only one who dies of such diseases. There are also earthquakes and tornadoes and floods. People die for many different reasons in many different places. And in each case, God could stop it. We would certainly stop it if we could. So the question is, why doesn't he? That's the basic idea. Now my argument can be presented more formally, and that's the next slide. If that's, there we go. Nope. It's the one behind that, the argument for the existence of God. Perfect. Thank you. Premise one. 
If there were an all-powerful and all-good God, then there would not be any evil in the world unless that evil is logically necessary for some adequately compensating good. Well, there is some evil in the world, and some of that evil is not logically necessary for any adequately compensating good. Therefore, there can't be a God who is all-powerful and all-good. That's it. It's a pretty simple argument. But it does contain a few terms that I think I need to explain to get it clear. The first crucial term is evil, because that's what we're talking about. By evil, I mean anything that all rational people avoid for themselves unless they have some adequate reason to want that evil. And on this list, then, things that meet that test would be pain, disability, ignorance, death. All of those things are something nobody wants for themselves without an adequate reason unless they're irrational or mentally ill in some way. Still, of course, it's not always irrational to seek these things for oneself when one does have an adequate reason, and sometimes one does. Here's an example. I used to wonder about why I would pay someone to drill on my teeth. Because it's excruciatingly painful and extremely uncomfortable to me. But, of course, the reason is clear. If I don't put up with that short-term evil, in the longer term, I'm going to suffer even more pain and disability. So some evil seems to be justified. Well, when is it justified? Evil is justified when there's no other way to avoid it or no better way to avoid it. Uh, some, some greater evil like tooth decay in the future or no better way to get a greater good in the future. If I could prevent tooth decay simply by taking a pill that tastes good and has no side effects, then it would be just crazy to go to the dentist and have him drill on my teeth. I take it that's all common sense. Morality enters the story when evil is caused, uh, is, when evil is caused not just to myself, but to other people as well. Uh, it's morally wrong to cause evil to other people. It's morally good to prevent evils for other people. Uh, and, of course, we have to add, unless there's an adequate reason, again. Sometimes we do have a reason. Self-defense in war, we might kill someone in self-defense. Doctor might amputate someone's leg, producing a disability in order to save a life. But if there's no reason like that to cut off somebody's leg when there is not an adequate reason like that, uh, would be morally bad. Now, the problem of evil arises because God is more skilled than any human doctor. God can prevent tooth decay with no pain. God can save any patient's life without amputation, and God can save my friend's baby from the suffering and death that it faced. It might seem that even God cannot do this because it would violate the laws of nature. But remember, God is omnipotent, can do anything logically possible. God can do miracles. He can intervene in nature and even change the laws of nature, that is, if he exists. Consequently, the only evils that God is justified in allowing are those that are logically necessary in order to promote some adequately compensating good. And that's what the premise of my argument claimed. I hope this makes my argument clear enough. Uh, as I said, the argument's very old, so of course Christian theologians throughout the ages have provided many possible responses to it. But I don't think any of those responses are any good. I can't go through every possible response uh, at this point, uh, or ever for that matter, 
um, but I will mention a few, and others might come up in discussion. So this will be a chance for you uh, to raise responses that uh, impress you. One traditional response is that evil is imposed by God as a punishment uh, for sin. The first problem with that response is that it doesn't seem that evil is distributed in accordance with sin. There's no reason to believe that someone who's struck by lightning has sinned more than someone who's not struck by lightning. Moreover, even babies suffer, but babies have not sinned yet, so there's nothing to punish them for. That's why in my example I use babies. Now some theologians respond that babies are punished for original sin. But if you think about it, that's just grossly unfair. Long ago, governments did punish whole families for the sins of one member of that family. But today we view that as barbaric. So original sin can't be a good reason for God to allow babies to suffer and die. Another common response is that the child who suffers in this life is repaid in heaven. But just think about it for a minute. Which is better? For the child to suffer in this life and then go to heaven, well, that's better than suffering in this life and not going to heaven. But is it better than another option, number two, going straight to heaven and not having to go through all that suffering? God could send the child straight to heaven without going through all that. If it were my child, that's what I'd want to do. And I assume that you would think the same. So why, does, why doesn't God pick number two straight to heaven instead of number one, go through all that suffering and then go to heaven? It's hard to see any reason. Probably the most popular response to the problem of evil is that free will is so valuable that God let us have it, even though he knew that we would sometimes, at least, misuse it and cause evil. And sure enough, a lot of evil in the world is caused by human actions. The point's often supported by an analogy to parents. You wouldn't want a robot for a child, would you? Well, I wouldn't want a robot for a child, although I must admit there are days when I wish my children would be more obedient. And that's for Miranda and Nick. Anyway, I'll grant for now that free will is very valuable. Uh, Still, there's much evil that cannot be justified in this way, and that's because it's natural evil. That means evil that is not brought about as a result of human actions, uh, but rather through natural processes. This includes diseases, it includes earthquakes, lightning, and so on. And all of the anguish and pain and death caused by those natural disasters uh, is something that cannot be explained by the need to have free will because they don't occur because of free will. That's why I use natural evil in my examples, and that means that free will cannot provide God with a good reason to let people suffer and die as much as they do. Well, another response refers to a different compensating good. Evil builds characters. The child suffers and dies, but the parents become uh, more courageous and observers become more compassionate. Again, just think about it. God's omnipotent. God can make these people compassionate by showing them movies or making them dream about evil and learn things in other ways. You don't have to have people actually going through it. Also, it's unfair to make this child suffer so that somebody else will learn something. Uh, We would certainly not praise a parent who let their child die in a horrible way just to teach that child's siblings some kind of lesson. But if that's because it wouldn't be fair to the child who suffered, 
And that means God's not fair if he's doing the same thing. The same point about fairness applies to another response that Bill Craig sometimes uses, that evil is used by God to maximize the number of people who know God and glorify God. If you think about it, it seems awfully narcissistic. If God allows babies to suffer so that other people will glorify him, then it seems horribly unfair to those children. If a father told us that he doesn't care whether his children suffer, he's going to let them suffer so they'll need him and turn to him for help, then we would think he was some kind of egomaniac. Besides, God could lead people to him in, in lots of other ways that don't involve as much evil. Now, another common response is that God has a reason, but we can't see it. To see the problem here, just think about your neighbor again. Always think about your neighbor. Suppose your neighbor lets his children starve. He has plenty of food that he could give to them, but he doesn't uh, give them that. So we think he's bad. And then someone says, well, maybe he has some reason not to share that food with them. Maybe he's going to use it for some better purpose later on. Uh, but we wouldn't think that that was a good reason to think that he does have some uh, reason to use it later on. Uh, we would think that we have evidence to believe that our neighbor is a bad person uh, if we don't see the reason, because we have to use the standards that we have. Uh, I see I'm out of time, so I'm quickly just going to mention the overriding response, which is the last one on my list. Uh, the theists sometimes say that evil gives us some reason not to believe in God, traditional God, but they insist that this evidence is overridden by other arguments for the existence of God. Well, the problem here is that I don't think any of these arguments work. And even if they do work, because that's a controversial claim, but even if they do work, it's hard to see how the arguments for, say, a creator could show that that creator is all-powerful and all-good. Very powerful and very good, maybe, but not all-powerful and all-good. So those arguments for a creator of some sort can't undermine my argument uh, about evil. So in conclusion, it seems to me that theists have a choice. They can say that God's not all-powerful, or they can say that God is not all-good. What they can't do is face the evidence of evil in this world and still believe in the traditional Christian God who's both all-powerful and all-good. And that is the only God that we're arguing about today. So my arguments show that there's no God of the relevant kind. Thank you. The problem of evil and suffering is undoubtedly the greatest obstacle to belief in God. But despite the undeniable emotional impact of this problem, I'm persuaded that as a strictly intellectual problem, the problem of evil does not constitute a disproof of the existence of God. Let me explain why I think this way. Walter's argument can be summarized in three simple steps. One. If God exists, gratuitous evil does not exist. By gratuitous evil, I mean evil which is morally unjustified, evil which God would have no morally sufficient reason to permit. Walter's argument is not that evil itself is incompatible with God. Rather, he's talking about a very special kind of evil, namely pointless, unnecessary evil. It's this kind of evil which is said to be incompatible with God. Two, gratuitous evil exists. Three, 
Therefore, God does not exist. Now, the most controversial premise in this argument is step two. Everybody admits that there is apparently gratuitous evil. We're often unable to discern the reason why harm befalls us. But that doesn't imply that these evils are really gratuitous. The atheist seems to think that if God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evils that occur, these reasons must be evident to us. But there's absolutely no grounds for that assumption. On the contrary, given our limits in time and space, intelligence and insight, we shouldn't expect to see the reasons why God permits every evil. Take, for example, our being historically limited. Evils which might appear gratuitous within our limited frame of reference might be seen to be justly permitted within God's wider frame of reference. Thus, the murder of an innocent man or a child's dying from leukemia could send a ripple effect through history such that God's morally sufficient reason for permitting it might not emerge until centuries later or maybe in another country. When you think about God's providence over the whole of human history, I think you can see how hopeless it is to speculate about whether any particular evil has a morally sufficient reason. So the first point I want to make is that due to our cognitive limitations, we simply have no way of knowing that premise two is true. The second point I'd like to make is that if certain Christian doctrines are true, they increase the probability that evils would appear to be gratuitous, even though they're not. This makes it all the harder for Walter to justifiably infer from the appearance of gratuitous evil to the fact of gratuitous evil. What are some of these doctrines? Well, let me mention three. One, the purpose of life is not human happiness as such, but knowing God. One reason that the evil in the world seems so pointless is that we naturally assume that if God exists, then the goal of human life is happiness in this world. God's role is to provide a comfortable environment for his human pets. But in the Christian view, this is false. We are not God's pets. And the end of life is not happiness as such, but rather knowing God, which in the end will bring true and everlasting fulfillment. Many evils occur in life which are utterly gratuitous with respect to producing human happiness in this life. But they may not be gratuitous with respect to producing the knowledge of God. It may well be the case that only in a world involving natural and moral evils that the maximum number of persons would freely come to know God and his salvation. So to carry his point, Walter would have to show that it is feasible for God to create a world which has the same amount of the knowledge of God and his salvation as the actual world, but with less evil. And this is sheer speculation. Two, mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and his purpose. Rather than submit to and worship God, people rebel against God and go their own way, and so find themselves alienated from God, morally guilty before him and groping in spiritual darkness. The terrible human evils in the world are testimony to man's depravity in this state of spiritual alienation. 
The Christian is not surprised at the terrible human evil in the world. On the contrary, he expects it. The Bible says that God has given mankind over to the evil it has chosen. He does not intervene to stop it. He lets human depravity run its course. This only serves to heighten mankind's moral responsibility before God, as well as our own wickedness and our need of moral forgiveness and moral cleansing. Three, God's purpose spills over into eternal life. In the Christian view, this life is not all there is. Jesus promised eternal life to all who would place their trust in him as their Savior and Lord. In the afterlife, God will reward those who have borne their suffering in courage and trust in him with an eternal life of unspeakable joy. The Apostle Paul, who lived a life of incredible suffering, wrote the following words. We do not lose heart, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul imagines, as it were, a scale in which on one side all the sufferings of this life are placed, and on the other side is placed the glory that God will bestow upon his children in heaven. And the weight of glory is so heavy that the sufferings of this life are not even worth being compared to it. Moreover, the longer we spend in eternity, the more the sufferings of this life shrink by comparison to an infinitesimal moment. And that's why Paul could call them a slight momentary affliction. They were simply overwhelmed by the ocean of divine eternity and joy which God lavishes upon his children in heaven. Given the prospect of eternal life, we shouldn't expect to see in this life God's reasons for permitting every evil. Some may be justified only in light of eternity. So given these three doctrines, we should expect much of the evil in the world to appear gratuitous. In order to show that they really are gratuitous, Walter would have to refute these three doctrines, which he hasn't even tried to do. Finally, my third point is that in weighing whether the evils in the world really are gratuitous, the most important factor will be, ironically, whether God exists. That is to say, Walter's own argument shows that if God exists, then the evil in the world is not gratuitous. Thus, we may turn the tables by arguing as follows. One, if God exists, gratuitous evil does not exist. This is Walter's own premise. Two star, God exists. This is what the Christian holds. It follows that three star, therefore, gratuitous evil does not exist. Thus, if God exists, then the apparently gratuitous evil in the world is not really gratuitous. Thus, the issue comes down to which is true, two or two-star. Let me share three reasons why I think premise two-star is true. One, the origin of the universe makes God's existence highly probable. Have you ever asked yourself why anything at all exists, where everything came from? Well, typically atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. 
But discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics during the last 70 years have rendered this improbable. According to the Big Bang model of the universe, all matter and energy, indeed physical space and time themselves, came into being at a point about 15 billion years ago. Prior to that point, the universe simply did not exist. For as Anthony Kinney uh, of Oxford University points out, this tends to be very awkward for the atheist. Kinney says a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. No such difficulty confronts the Christian theist since the Big Bang Theory only confirms what he has always believed, namely, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Two, the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life makes God's existence highly probable. During the last 30 years or so, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life, like ours, depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions simply given in the Big Bang itself. Scientists once believed that whatever the initial conditions of the universe, eventually intelligent life might evolve. But we now know that our existence is balanced on a razor's edge. The existence of intelligent life depends upon a conspiracy of initial conditions which must be fine-tuned to an accuracy and degree that is literally incomprehensible and incalculable. To give just one example, PCW Davies has calculated that a change in the strength of gravity or of the weak force by only one part in 10 to the 100th power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. There are around 50 such constants and quantities in the Big Bang which must be fine-tuned in this way if the universe is to permit life. There is no physical reason why these constants and quantities should possess the values they do. Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle remarks, a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics. So once again, the view that Christian theists have always held, that there is an intelligent designer of the universe, seems to make much more sense than the atheistic view that the universe, when it popped into being uncaused out of nothing, just happened to be, by chance, fine-tuned for an incomprehensible precision for the existence of intelligent life. Three. Objective moral values make God's existence highly probable. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. By objective values, I mean values which hold whether anybody believes in them or not. If there is no God, then as many atheists and theists agree, moral values are merely subjective. They are either the culturally relative byproduct of sociobiological evolution or else they're just expressions of personal taste. Without a transcendent God to anchor them, there is no absolute right and wrong. But the problem is that objective moral values do exist, and deep down we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. As the philosopher of science Michael Roos has uh, admitted, the man who says that it is all right to rape little children is just as wrong as the man who says two plus two equals five.
But if objective values cannot exist without God, and objective values do exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. In fact, this third reason for God's existence furnishes us with an argument for God from evil, as paradoxical as that might sound. It goes like this. One, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, evil exists. This is the premise supplied by the atheist. It therefore follows that three, therefore, objective moral values exist, namely some things are evil. Thus, we can conclude four, therefore, God exists. So, although superficially evil seems to call into question God's existence, at a more fundamental level, it actually proves God's existence, since without God, evil, as such, would not exist. Now, these three arguments are just part of the evidence that God exists. But if God exists, then, as I've explained, we have good reason for thinking that the evils in the world are not really gratuitous. Accordingly, Walter's argument fails. So, in summary, we've seen three reasons which undercut Walter's claim that gratuitous evil exists. Number one, we're not in a position to justifiably claim that if God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil, these reasons should be evident to us. Two, certain Christian doctrines increase the probability of the coexistence of God and apparently gratuitous evil. And three, we have good reasons to think that God exists, which in turn implies that evil is not really gratuitous. Now, all of this has been said in response to Walter's premise two, but premise one is not obvious either, and some thinkers have denied it. Perhaps there has to be a certain amount of gratuitous evil in the world. If that's the case, then Walter's argument is doubly fallacious. In conclusion, then, as an intellectual problem, the problem of evil, I think, does not disprove God. Of course, the problem of how to deal emotionally with evil still remains. And perhaps we can talk about that more as the evening unfolds. At this point, we're going to take just a moment for a word from our sponsors. That would be me. And uh, we're going to invite forward our ushers. If you can uh, pull out your question card and you have a question for one or both of our guests this evening, we invite you to write that question. Perhaps you already have. And if you would pass that card, just the half of the card now, uh, to the aisle. We have ushers who will come. Please come. And they will collect your cards. This will give us uh, opportunities to explore the questions that you have as we continue our discussion and our conversation this evening. Now, as the ushers are, are collecting these cards, I'd just like to say that uh, there are some other opportunities for you to continue the conversation. Uh, if there is some interest in continuing to think about issues regarding the existence of God and its relationship to suffering and how we can respond to suffering and evil in our own lives, uh, Wooddale Church offers you some opportunities for that kind of study. I'd just like to mention that on two evenings, April 30 and May 7, here at Wooddale Church, Dr. Don Byerly, a former skeptic scientist,
who examines the faith and looks at the evidence for faith and against faith will be holding a seminar. And you are invited to be a part of that discussion. That will happen on the two Sunday evenings after Easter, April 30 and May 7, right here at Wooddale Church at 6 p.m. This is called the Faith Study, and the leader of that is Dr. Don Byerly, and you're invited to be a part of that. There are also several other opportunities where you can have a three-week discussion group opportunity. These will happen at various times, and uh, they will happen in order to give you the chance to continue tonight's conversation. And if you would just uh, check that box on the, on the section that you're going to pass in after the event is over, uh, we can uh, be in touch with you and allow you to be a part of that. also want to say that the Wooddale Community Bookstore will be open after tonight's event. There are a variety of resources available there. If you would like to uh, purchase something for your own personal benefit, that would be great. And finally, immediately after this session, the Wooddale Cafe, as always, will be open, and you're invited to, to uh, come to the cafe and to talk with others and uh, be in conversation at that time. Now, for the rest of the evening, what we're going to do is to have a time now uh, for conversation with the three of us on the platform. First, we will give Walter and then Bill an opportunity to give uh, a response to the other person's presentation. And then we will participate uh, in a dialogue and discussion here on the platform. And then after we've done that for a, a time, we will turn to your questions and we will ask each of our guests to respond to those. So at this point, we're going to begin with Walter and give him an opportunity to respond uh, just from his chair here to what Bill has said uh, for four or five minutes, and then we'll respond, uh, allow uh, Bill to respond briefly uh, to what Walter has said. I was somewhat surprised to hear you say that I hadn't responded to those arguments because it seemed to me that I responded to uh, all of them in the course of my uh, remarks, uh, such as the fact that even if there is a God who is a creator, he doesn't have to be all-powerful and all-good, and that's the kind of God we're talking about. Um, so we can talk about that, but I just, I just have to say something at the beginning. Atheists do not believe that it's okay to rape young children. Uh, I don't know where people get the idea that if you're an atheist, uh, then morality is out the window. I mean, I know where they get it. They get it from Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, but there's no reason you have to follow them. I suggested a very good reason, I think, why it's wrong to rape little children, because it hurts them. It causes evil in their lives. And there's no compensating benefit. And it's wrong to cause evil with no compensating benefit. And little children are no exception to that. So I don't get this argument from... Uh, moral values, objective moral values, because I think there are objective moral values, and atheists should agree uh, with that as well as theists. Um, there were two points that I thought of in listening to your opening speech. And by the way, when I said you hadn't responded to those... That was specifically with regard to those three Christian doctrines. Certainly, many of the other points you did anticipate in your opening speech, which I hadn't obviously heard. Uh, so uh, I, I was only speaking of those three Christian doctrines. But, Walter, and I, I want to make a, a question, ask a question here, and this is quite sincere. This is not trying to score a debater's point or anything. But it seemed to me that many cases, the way you would refute solutions to the problem of evil would be to say, well, this solution doesn't solve that kind of evil. And 
this solution doesn't solve that kind of evil, and this solution doesn't solve this other kind of evil. But it seems to me very obvious that one thing the theist could say is that when you have a combination of solutions, they cover all the bases. That, uh, for example, take the, the example of the, uh, the God who allows some child to die uh, because he knows that ultimately this will result in a greater knowledge of God, say on the part of those around him or even the ripple effect through history. And you said this is uh, unfair to the children who, who died and suffered. But it seems to me that what the theist could say there would be that the knowledge of God is, is a good for those who receive it, and then my point about the eternal compensation would apply to the infant. So there would be a different solution to the infant suffering. Or, uh, but, that's, but that's exactly what I responded to, that with the infant, you have the, the eternal life uh, is not an adequate compensation because the infant could have gone straight to heaven without that. And if we need to know that there's suffering in the world in order to make us know God in our own vulnerability, we got plenty of it. We don't need this other child to die from this horrendous disease in order to convince us that there is suffering in the world and we are vulnerable. But you don't, you don't know that. I, and and I, I think that... You, I don't you, know what. I know there's suffering in the world. You don't know that that evil was unnecessary for perhaps that relative or that friend or even somebody... 50, 100 years from now to, to come to know God because of what happened. But, but my point was, I think you missed my point. See, you did exactly what I, I, I said, is that the justification, the morally sufficient reason for the infant dying might be that some person would come to know God. And the way you respond to that is, well, the infant himself could have gone to heaven without having to suffer. Right. But that's not the solution that I'm proposing for the the infant's own suffering, for that one, that would be the other solution of the eternal compensation. You see, so that what you, you, you're doing is you're showing that no one solution covers all the bases. But it seems to me that the theist could have a combination of solutions, and together they would cover all the bases. But I meant to be showing that no solution, even any combination of solution, works in that case. Um, because it doesn't seem to me that it could possibly be fair to make this infant suffer horrendously so that someone 50 years from now will come to know God. God has other ways of making us know him. God doesn't have to make little children suffer in intense pain in order for people to know that he exists. You think there are proofs for the existence of God already. Why can't we know that? Through the proofs. You don't have to have kids in pain. Well, some people do come to know God through proofs, but I think relatively few do. Whereas, it's just a sociological fact, I think, that many, many people have come to faith through going through intense suffering. And in the case but, of the but that doesn't himself, show that that was the only way for them to come to faith. The fact that no, they did the come to faith here, that Walter. way doesn't show that God couldn't have brought them to faith in some other but way that involved less that's suffering. That's your burden of proof, though, to show, right? I don't know who has the burden of proof here. It seems to me that you can always say, well, it might lead to knowledge 50 years from now. There's some possibility it could send a ripple throughout history. But I see no reason to believe that that would happen. You can always defend a doctrine by saying might, 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 might. Mm -hmm. But I see no reason in this case to think that someone 50 years from now will come to knowledge of God by this child's suffering. 
This has been a, an excellent uh, interchange, and thank you for doing that. Let's focus a little bit on this idea of apparent uh, suffering, or apparently pointless suffering. Uh, and that seems to be a point of contention here. Uh, does, uh, is it enough to say, I don't know uh, that there is a point to this suffering? Uh, does, does it, uh, is it adequate on the side of the, uh, of the theist to say, here's a possible answer? Uh, are you required, or does the theist required uh, to show exactly what the, the purpose for a particular suffering is? And, and it's a question of burden of proof. Well, I, I really, I think burden of proof is a very difficult thing to make sense of, um, but I can't explain it now. Compare your neighbor. I think always we should think about if we want to have standards of goodness, are we going to judge that someone is a good person? Think about your neighbor. If your neighbor had a child who was suffering horrendously and they could save that child but they didn't, and you had to decide, is that neighbor a good person or not? Maybe it'll send a ripple through history. But if you have no reason to believe that it will, then you have to work with the evidence that you have. And the evidence that you have is that this person is not a good person. Uh, and it seems to me it's the same with God. We have to work from the evidence that we have. We can't always be saying might, 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 uh, or we could believe anything. Do we have any reason to believe? Well, I, I think that this is a wonderful illustration that actually supports my point. Because, you see, when we make that judgment of the negligent neighbor, it is precisely because the neighbor lacks omniscience and is, is not all-knowing that that person could be indicted for not uh, preventing that evil. But when you're dealing with a, a God who is provident and sovereign over the whole of human history, who sees the end from the beginning, uh, then you simply have no way of knowing that that being does not have a morally sufficient reason for this evil simply because you don't see it with your limited lifetime, your limited insight and intelligence. Uh, I mean, let me just give an example. Suppose God, in his providence, wanted to bring it about that the American Congress would freely enact the Lend-Lease policy prior to America's entry into World War II. Think of the innumerable, incalculable contingencies in history that would have to be engineered in order for that, those circumstances to come about where those free agents would be freely elected to that legislative body, would freely adopt that policy, and so forth. It might well involve all kinds of evils along the way that we couldn't even comprehend in order to bring about just one single uh, event in history. And so when you're dealing with a provident God, he's totally unlike the, the, the negligent neighbor. Well, I think the negligent neighbor might, in fact, know a lot more about his family, his children, than I do. And so if I think that this person might have a reason for allowing their child to suffer or for beating them as a punishment for not cleaning up their room or whatever, then I go to the neighbor and I ask. I say, what is your reason? Well, I haven't been given any reason uh, other than speculation about what might be the case as to why this particular child would be allowed to suffer. So I ask God, and the question is, if God has such a reason, why doesn't God tell me? Do you really think, though, that that is 
a reasonable demand that for every single thing that goes wrong in our lives, that we would have the sort of hotline to God where God would tell us, this is why this has been permitted in your life. I mean, to me, I'd that be happy turns if the we could use the hotline once. House. Let's let, let him finish here. Yeah, that, that turns the universe into a sort of haunted house, I think. I, I, I think that what God has done is he has given us sufficient evidence for his existence and his love and says, trust me through this as you go through this, but you're not going to know for every single thing that goes wrong why it happens. That It's useless torturing yourself trying to figure that out. Well, I'm not torturing myself no, trying I, to figure I it out. But uh, <laughs> um, if, uh, if God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnibenevolent, then my ignorance would be an evil that he should try to minimize. And I would... Uh, I would like to see it happen, you know? Let's uh, turn our attention to the question of, of moral values. Now, both of you raised these issues, and uh, if there is evil in the world, that suggests that there is some way for us to detect good and evil and some ultimate reason why we would say this is good and that's evil. Yeah. Bill, you think that uh, evil and good require some kind of moral principle and that the moral principle... Uh, requires the yeah. existence of God. Why would you say that? Well, I think that it's very hard on atheism or naturalism to get some kind of normativity or any kind of normativity of the way things ought to be or that something else ought not to be. On the atheistic or naturalistic view, we are just animals. We're advanced primates. And when you look at, in the animal kingdom, Actions that look very much like rape go on all the time, and animals are injurious to each other. They hurt each other. Uh, and yet, these are not uh, immoral. When a, a lion kills a zebra, it kills it, but it doesn't murder it, because these things are not against any kind of... They're not moral agents. And uh, similarly, with rape that goes on in the animal kingdom. So it's very hard for me to understand why these strange moral properties suddenly accrue to homo sapiens, uh, on an atheistic view that, that these actions which are natural and normal in the animal world suddenly become forbidden for us in the absence of any moral lawgiver. So the, the question for you would be, is it really adequate to say that it hurts counts as a, as a ground or a basis for these moral values? Uh, no, not by itself. When a rock falls off a cliff and hits me in the head, I don't hold it morally responsible. Why not? Because it doesn't have free will, and I don't think animals do either, and so we don't make moral judgments of animals uh, for that very reason. But that doesn't mean that the atheist can't say that moral judgments are made of creatures with free will when they cause harm to other creatures uh, for no adequate reason. Now, you told me in Dartmouth when we had a dialogue there that you didn't believe in free will for human beings. No, I did not say that at Dartmouth. Well, how, how can you, as a naturalist and I assume a materialist, hold that there is freedom of the will. If there is no immaterial self, isn't everything that we do just determined by our genetic makeup and our sensory stimuli so that everything we do is, is determined? Otherwise, where does this, uh, this free agent come from? I don't, I, happen to, I don't know whether this is, I'm not sure how this fits into the debate, but uh, I happen to be a compatibilist about free will. I think that, in fact, we are determined to act in the ways... Uh, that we do, but nonetheless, uh, we can have free will because the two are compatible if you think about it. It all depends on how you're determined. If I am determined by someone pushing me, 
and I fall into you, then I'm not responsible for harming you because I was pushed. I had no control over it. But if I run into you because I chose to and had a desire to because I wanted to hurt you, then I did it of my own free will. I would be the first to admit that there are a lot of tricky cases in the middle. What do you do about mental illness? What do you do about extreme passion? And so on. That's a very difficult issue. But I don't see why an atheist can't believe in determinism and also free will of some sort that needs to be defined more precisely. Okay. Let's uh, take a final question here, and then uh, we have some questions that have come from the Internet and from the audience, and so we're going to pose those to each of you and give you an opportunity uh, to respond to those. But a final question in this uh, question and uh, dialogue time, which has been really very uh, good, I think, um, is this. Let's suppose uh, that we have a person who has suffered significantly through this person's life, and at the end of her life, uh, she is now facing death. Uh, from your worldview, what kind of opportunity would you give to her? What kind of advice or what kind of consolation, sort of practical benefit would you provide uh, for that person based on your worldview? And I want to ask both of you that question uh, to see how you respond. Walter, why don't you go ahead? What would I say to her to make her feel better about the fact that she's dying? The question is, what kind of uh, advice or response would you give her in this situation? Uh, I would tell her that she has done a lot of good things in her life, I would assume. If she's a friend of mine, that'll be true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that she should be uh, thankful for all the experiences that she has had, all the people that she has been able to love and help, and all the people who have loved her and the effects that they've had uh, on her life. And that that's the most we can expect. And that that's enough, that's a lot, to help other people. I would try to assure her of God's unfailing love for her, uh, that as she goes through these deep waters, that God will be with her, that he will guide her through death to the other side, and that there awaits for her, if she will trust in God and his grace through Jesus Christ, a glorious life of unspeakable joy that awaits her, and that this transition from physical life here to everlasting life is but... Uh, a transition from a cramped and narrow foyer into a great banquet hall of God's eternity, and that therefore she can face this with courage and with hope um, that she is not alone. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And now we're going to turn to some questions that have come from you and from those who are on the Internet and from other sources. And we will uh, ask the questions alternately to our two guests and uh, give, them to, uh, give them an opportunity to respond. Uh, first of all, Bill, a question for you uh, from the, a questioner on the Internet posed it this way. So, where was God during the drought in Africa when thousands of people starved to death? How does a loving God allow that yeah. to happen? Well, it's very interesting that this is one of these cases where human moral evil gets inextricably intertwined with natural evils. Those uh, famines in Ethiopia that were brought to our attention a few years ago so poignantly on television are not the result of natural disasters. That is the result of the dictatorial regime in Ethiopia and in the Sudan that is carrying out uh, 
uh, a terrible war against the peoples of the South, and they were using food as a weapon. They were literally starving those people to death. So in that case, again, it's not God who is to blame. It's human beings themselves who have, who have uh, brought these atrocities on, on the world. If there were a world in which everyone were to obey the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, although there could still occur natural evils, they would be tremendously reduced. There would be aid and help for people who go through natural evils. The world would be transformed in ways that we can scarcely imagine. Uh, and it's also very interesting to note, just as a sociological fact, that it is precisely in Ethiopia and other countries like this where the growth of evangelical Christianity is proceeding at unprecedented rates that uh, millions are turning to Christ in the midst of poverty, war, and suffering, uh, and, and finding hope. Uh, so that I think God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evils that occur. That's not to say they're not evil. They are unspeakable, and we should do everything as a nation to try to stop them. But uh, we mustn't lay the blame for this at God's doorstep. It lies squarely at our own. Walter, here's a question for you, uh, also from the uh, Internet. It's asking this question, if evil existed uh, prior to the emergence of human beings, and I take it that it means uh, through the evolutionary process, which you would hold to, I assume, uh, what would be an example of this evil, and how would you account for evil existing prior to the emergence of human beings? Well, I think that evils existed. There was pain, there was disability, there was death among animals, but it was not moral evil because the animals didn't have uh, free will, as I said before. Uh, so I'm not sure that, I, there's, that more needs to be said about that. But can I say something about the Ethiopian famine? Okay. Because uh, I, uh, I completely agree, by the way, about the Ethiopian famine being due mainly to moral evil by people. Amartya Sen, who is the first philosopher in a long time to win a Nobel Prize, uh, has, has shown that famines arise largely from lack of information and political instability uh, and so on. But the fact that it arises from people doing those evil things doesn't show that God is not also responsible. If I see someone beating my child, sure enough, they're responsible because they're doing it. But if I stand by and let them do it when I could stop them, then I'm responsible as well. And so the fact that, some, that people are guilty through their own free will doesn't mean that God is not responsible. Because God, after all, could stop those things from happening without taking away those people's free will. They can still choose to do it, but he can make them ineffective. He can make them fail in their plan, and then they keep their free will without causing so much harm. And it's not clear to me why God wouldn't have done that in the Ethiopian case and many others. Do you want a brief response? Since well, said yeah, I would say that that... That plan of action on God's part would make moral choices trivial in, in this world. If he were to make all of our bad choices ineffective, this would be like uh, turning the terrorist bullets into rubber before they hit their target or uh, when somebody drinks and goes out and drives drunk, that there would never be any negative repercussions of that. It would ultimately lead to moral irresponsibility and irrational behavior because there would never be any deleterious consequences from bad choices. So I think God 
for better or for worse, allows the consequences of human freedom to run their course. And, of course, this isn't without compensation, though, for those who suffer and, and trust him. All right, here's another question for you, Bill. Um, this person has asked, what does gratuitous mean? And I can even answer that one. <laughs> well, I defined it briefly in my first speech. I said it would be morally unjustified evil. It would be evil which is pointless and unnecessary. And then to follow up on that, then, uh, why does God choose to heal some people, or why are some people healed by God, when other people apparently are not healed by God? How does God choose whether to act or not in terms of alleviating suffering? I would say, from a Christian point of view, that it fits into the providential plan of God for human history. I think that the teaching of the New Testament is that nothing happens in the world that escapes God's attention, that the Jesus said the very hairs of your head are numbered, that the tiniest sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God's knowledge of it. So that God's providential plan encompasses all of the smallest things, and he knows which prayers to grant, which prayers to deny, uh, with a view toward his ultimate purposes in human history being achieved. And those will reach far, far into the future, perhaps millennia from now. We have no idea how the choices and the prayers that we offer now might impact human history in the future. Walter, there's a question for you now, and uh, that has to do with, uh, since we're being very fair here, which is a morally good thing. Um, I agree. Good. I'm glad to hear you agree on that. Um, On what basis would you respond to the evidence for Jesus Christ, that Jesus uh, rose from the dead on Easter Sunday? and that that might have some relevance to the issue of the problem of evil. Would you disregard the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? How do you respond to that? Well, I don't think there is any good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There's some historical evidence that some people reported that the grave was empty after three days, but any psychologist will tell you that when witnesses start recovering things decades after the fact, when they're surrounded by peer pressure that points them in a certain direction and lots of cues, that that's exactly when eyewitness testimony is not uh, reliable. Uh, So we would certainly never accept that kind of evidence in a court of law. Uh, But even if the grave were empty, that doesn't show that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. Uh, That's like saying that If I have a pint of my favorite type of ice cream, which, by the way, happens to be coconut almond fudge chip by Ben & Jerry's, uh, in the freezer, and I'm dying to eat it when I get home, and I come home and it's not there, and my daughter Miranda says, I didn't take it, and my son Nick says, I didn't take it, and my wife Liz says, I didn't take it, that I conclude that that ice cream ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of Ben & Jerry. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Interesting analogy. (laughs) Bill. You know, this fudge ripple ice cream thing has really got me going here. I'd like to pursue that for another half hour. uh... (laughs) Bill, why wouldn't God comfort us by letting us know the reasons he has for allowing evil? Well, I'm not sure the answer to that question, except that uh, 
I think it would sort of turn the universe into a haunted house if every time I stubbed my toe, every time something bad went wrong, every time there was evil, there was this telepathic message from God telling me this is why this is going on. I mean, that would be so strange, a universe. It, it, it would, uh, I think, be like living in, in a sort of haunted building or something. So it seems to me that what God does is he gives us good reasons to trust him through the suffering without necessarily telling us why. Maybe it wouldn't be a comfort. I mean, maybe the reasons would be so complicated or maybe they would, by, by giving us the reasons in some case, it might be a sufficient condition to prevent the reasons from coming about. I mean, for example, suppose God were to say to me, I'm going to allow this to happen in your life because this is going to happen. And so I think, oh, well, I don't want that to happen. So as a result, I do something else and, and foul up the plan. I mean, it, it could very well be that God could not communicate these things to us without the providential plan going awry. In fact, I think that's probably very plausible now that I think about it. Because that would be a, that would be a quite different world then. I mean, the minute he communicated to us his providential plan, that alters the plan. It would, it would be a totally different world. So I'm not sure that would even be possible for him to do that with free agents, mm -hmm. when you think about it. Sort of like telling somebody predictions about what's going to happen in the future, when you know that if they know that, then it won't happen. You see, it's a self-refuting situation. So it sounds like you're creating some good thoughts right on the spot here well, as yeah, I mean, respond I had, to this issue. I'm just thinking about it while you ask. That's a, good, good, that's a sign of a good question, I think. Uh. Walter, here's a question for you. Um, if your child was in this accident, or in a accident, uh, is there anything or anyone to whom you would turn uh, for some help in this situation? Doctors. Okay. Uh, I would turn to doctors to help me. I would turn to friends to help me with my own psychological situation. I would uh, turn to my daughter if she was still conscious and able to. I'm not sure which accident you're talking about, but, uh, but if she's still conscious, I would talk to her. It seems to me that instead of depending on God, we ought to depend on each other. Instead of expecting God to help us, we ought to be helping each other. And I think we should be talking to each other more to help each other through these bad times uh, rather than necessarily uh, depending on someone else. Okay. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the difference between uh, evil that's caused by human freedom and evil that is natural evil. You mentioned, and I think we, we know that things like famines are often attributable to human behavior. But what about truly natural evils? Yeah. What do you, how do you respond to those kinds of things, Bill? Well, I think that the points that I made all applied to natural as, more, as well as moral evil. We're not first in a position to judge whether or not any natural evil is truly gratuitous, whether or not this hurricane or tornado might not have historical reproductions that we cannot anticipate. Uh, a good analogy here would be from chaos theory. Chaos theorists have shown that certain macroscopic systems are highly unstable to the tiniest perturbations so that even the flutter of a butterfly's wings in a West African jungle can set in motion forces that will cause a hurricane over the Atlantic Ocean. 
Yet nobody looking at that little butterfly, even in principle, could predict such an outcome. And it's the same for natural evils as well. My second point about the Christian doctrines, I think, would also apply. The purpose of life is not happiness as such, uh, but the knowledge of God. And often we can come to know God or others come to know God through natural evil. And then the good reasons that God exists would outweigh uh, any improbability that natural evil might be thought to throw upon God. Even the free will defense is relevant here because, you see, it might be only in a world involving natural evils that the maximum number of people would freely come to place their faith in God and come to know him. So that natural evils form a context in which free agents act and react. So freedom of the will is relevant even in the case of natural evil. Okay. Can now, I say something about the butterfly? The butterfly? Yeah. The butterfly effect, yes. Um, I think that's true. If, if the butterfly might cause storms in the Atlantic, uh, me waving my hand might cause storms in the Atlantic. That's what these theories say. That doesn't mean that I have any reason to believe I just caused a storm in the Atlantic. I have every reason to believe that that is not going to cause a storm in the Atlantic. It's a mere possibility that that might cause a storm in the Atlantic with no reason to believe that it will. Uh, so the, what these people say about, what chaos theory says about uh, butterflies, wings, and so on, uh, it doesn't seem to me is an adequate response to the claim that the evidence overwhelmingly is against it. Uh, it's because it simply shows, well, maybe all the evidence is wrong, and in fact, it does have this long-term ripple effect. Do yeah, no, I, I don't think that's right. It's not just saying maybe or this is possible, but it's saying that Certain macroscopic systems are unstable to these little tiny perturbations, and therefore no one can say with confidence that this event has no repercussions, that this event can be assessed purely in terms of itself without looking at the wider context. And it's the atheist here, again I insist, who is, who is bearing the burden of proof, who says that this evil is unjustified, that God probably does not have a morally sufficient reason for permitting it. And so I don't have to prove that God does have a morally sufficient reason. It's the atheist who's claiming that God does not or cannot. Well, we're going to ask a final question to both of you and give you a chance both to answer the same question, uh, and then we'll go to our closing statements. Walter, what happens to a person when that person dies? Is there a soul? And uh, what happens to the soul? Uh, no, I don't think there's any soul. That's that's a short answer. Uh, I don't think that that person's uh, mental functions or soul continue uh, after death. And I think that's something that we have to learn to live with because that's the way life is. So if you were to think that uh, there is a sufficient reason for evil, given your worldview, it would have to be in this life. Yes, it would have to be in this life for helping uh, other people in this life. Exactly. Um, because I think that uh, there's no reason to think that anything happens after this life is over. Mm -hmm. Stop. Bill, what happens to a person when this person dies? Is there a soul? And how is that relevant to this issue? Well, I think that there is a soul or mind or immaterial aspect of our being, that we're not just a brain in uh, uh, this body. And I think that's evident because of free will. Uh, the fact that we have free will, I think, requires that there be an immaterial soul, because otherwise all of our choices are determined by 
our genetic makeup and the external stimuli that we receive through our five senses. So there isn't really any freedom of the will. We're not significant moral agents in the absence of an immaterial self who can act on the body as well as be passively acted upon by the sensory stimuli we receive. And um, so I think we've got good grounds for believing that there is a soul. Now, on the Christian view, the soul survives the death of the body uh, because it is an immaterial entity. And ultimately, the Christian hope is for a reunification of the body and soul in the resurrection state in life everlasting, where God will wipe away every tear, uh, evil will be vanquished forever, physical deformity and pain will be gone, and there will be uh, eternal life in, in God's new creation. So that's the hope to which Christians look forward. Well, at this point, we've had some good uh, interchange and dialogue back and forth and good questions and a little sparring. And uh, we'd like to give each of our guests now an opportunity to make a final summary statement. And so, Walter, we'll begin with you. And if you would go to the podium, uh, you can make your final statement. And then, without introduction, we'll ask Bill to do the same. Well, I said that this was one of those issues uh, that there's no conclusive proof one way or the other. And guess what? I was right. Uh, my argument was simple, that if God is all good and all-powerful, then there wouldn't be unjustified evil in the world because he wouldn't let it happen. Um, but there is unjustified evil in the world, or at least there's certainly evil in the world, and I don't see any reason, and as far as I can tell, no one has shown that there is any reason, although we can always speculate about there possibly, maybe, sometime, in some way, being some reason that we don't have any reason to believe in. Uh, now, Bill gave several responses. One is that we're just not in a position to know that there's no reason. I agree we're not in a position to know conclusively. But I don't think I just caused a hurricane. Maybe I did, but I don't think I did, and I don't think you have any reason to believe that I did. So even if there's a possibility, that doesn't show that the evidence is on his side. He also referred to the three Christian doctrines as showing that, in fact, uh, there would be some reason for this evil. But I actually talked about each of those in my opening uh, statement uh, and afterwards, uh, if I'm keeping track of them properly, as I hope I am. One of them had to do with the afterlife. And it still seems to me that God could take my friend's child and send them straight to heaven without having to go through all that suffering. Or at least send them after only ten minutes of suffering instead of ten days of intense suffering. Uh, and I just don't see any reason for that. Uh, finally, uh, Bill's point was the proofs for the existence of God. Well, I haven't been able to go through those one by one, but I think the point that I made in my opening statement still holds, that even if there are proofs for some kind of creator, that doesn't show that the creator is all-powerful and all-good. And that's what you would need to undermine the argument from evil. So I think I've refuted each of those. I have to admit that maybe there's some reason, but I just don't see it, and I don't think we have any reason to believe uh, that there is one. So, in the end, I think the problem of evil is something that's insoluble. But I want to emphasize 
that that doesn't mean you have to give up all belief in God. It means you have to give up a belief in this particular doctrine about God, that God is all good and all powerful. You can still believe in lots of different types of gods. You can create a different theology that is more consonant with the facts of the world in which we live. Uh, and I don't want to undermine other types of uh, beliefs, other types of religious beliefs that might uh, serve purposes in your own personal lives. It might be worth closing with just a, a statement about how Christian theology got into this mess. In my understanding, the New Testament doesn't say that God is all-powerful and all-good. That was a doctrine that came in later under Greek influence. And it's when you take the Christian the early Christian church doctrines, and mix them with the Greek doctrines, did you get a doctrine that doesn't make sense in light of the world that we live in? Now, there are a variety of responses to that. One of them would be to give, get rid of the Greek doctrines and go back to original Christianity as it was in the New Testament. It seems to me that would solve the problem of evil, but it would not be a defense of the type of God that I was arguing against, namely one that's all-powerful uh, and all-good. So I think... In terms of that traditional God, it seems to me that it still hasn't provided any uh, response to the problem of evil, and so I have to conclude uh, that it doesn't exist. Thank you. In my closing statement, I'd like to summarize the points that I made tonight. First, I argued that we don't really know that evils in the world are gratuitous because we're not in a position to judge the probability that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evils that occur. Remember my example of the adoption of the Lend-Lease policy, the innumerable contingencies that would be involved in planning that single event. When you think of God's providence over the whole of human history, it is simply beyond our cognitive capacity to assess the probabilities that any evil we see would have some morally sufficient reason. Secondly, I indicated three Christian doctrines which increase the probability that God and apparently gratuitous evil would exist that the purpose of life is not happiness as such, but knowing God. And I don't think anyone could prove that it is possible for God to create a world involving this much knowledge of God and his salvation, but with less evil. That is pure speculation. I also indicated that much of the evil is due to man's rebellion against God and that there is an eternal life which will reward those who trust God uh, in courage and faith uh, that will more than compensate for what they endure. And finally, I said there are good reasons that God exists and that that implies that evil is not gratuitous. The creation of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and the existence of moral values. Waller said, well, those arguments, even if successful, don't prove God is all-powerful and all-good. Well, the moral argument does prove that he's all-good. And the argument from the origin of the universe comes pretty close to omnipotence, since it would almost seem to take omnipotence to bring something into existence out of nothing in the way that God did in creating the world. And the biblical conception is of an all-powerful and all-good God. One of the biblical names of God is El Shaddai, which means all-powerful. So I don't think we've seen any good reason to think that the evils in the world are gratuitous or that they outweigh the evidence for the existence of God. I want to close by sharing with you a letter that I received this past year from a fellow named John Medici, who is from Long Beach, California. 
I often get letters of this sort reflecting philosophically on problems, and this was John's reflections on the problem of evil. And the fourth point struck me. He said, we must consider the possibility that we are exaggerating our perception of evil due to our status as temporal human beings. If there is no God, then many things would be very important to us. Naturally, we would consider the death of a good man or a good woman as an absolute tragedy because they had so much to contribute to this world. After all, this life would be all there is. But let's assume for a moment God's perspective. He might say something like this, if I might be so bold. Death? What about it? So, your baby daughter died before she was born. Guess what? She's with me. I didn't lose her in outer space. Eventually, you're going to die, too. I know it hurts. And because I, the Lord, love you so much, I'll move the heaven and earth, if necessary, to bring you the healing you need so much. And if you stay with me, you and your daughter will be reunited. Uh, and after about a million years or so, you'll look at each other and scratch your heads, wondering what all the tears were about. But for now, see things from my perspective. And then he concluded his letter. Well, Dr. Craig, that's my analysis for why God allows evil. Granted, I'm no theologian, scholar, or minister. I'm just a Christian with a logical mind that is satisfied with logical answers. Call me cruel, clinical, or even Mr. Spock. But I can talk since the baby daughter lost in point four belonged to my wife and me. We lost her in November 1995. I'm no stranger to suffering. I'm also no stranger to logic. And I believe this is the root of the problem of evil. When evil strikes us, we get emotional, and we expect emotional answers, and philosophers are no different. Whether their name is Kant, Nietzsche, Kant, or Sartre, when they suffer, they don't want an equation that 2 plus 2 equals 4. They want to know why. When tragedy struck our home, the Lord suspended my pain long enough for me to see these points. My wife has understandably suffered more than I, but she understands these reasons as well. And with God's touch, she too is walking right alongside me. Maybe my argument won't make it into your next book, but someday it might help you or a friend in time of trouble. Sincerely, John Medici. P.S. We now have a little boy who turned two in January. I think John is absolutely right. The problem of evil is at root emotional. And I think that God is the ultimate solution to the problem of evil. If God does not exist, we are locked without hope in a world filled with gratuitous and unredeemed suffering. But if God exists, he is the solution to the problem of evil, for he invites us into the fellowship of an incommensurable good, everlasting life with himself.